All right, we're, we're going to try to do this a little differently instead of having to stand twice. After the hymn, I'm just going to do the scripture reading and then we'll launch into the message. So uh, we'll start that this morning. Romans 7, verses 7 through 13. Turn in your Bibles there or uh, you can also see it up on the screen uh, in a moment. There we go. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So then... The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin, by effecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Father, we ask that you would make us attentive to your word this morning. We ask for your Holy Spirit to work through your word to arm us against the deceptiveness of sin and to make us aware of sin's response to your righteous law so that we'll be fortified to stand in your grace. We ask this in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Have you ever come across a wet paint sign before? What's your very first impulse when you see one? Especially if it's on a wall as nice and glossy red as that one. If you walk by that same wall without the sign, uh, you probably wouldn't pay that much attention to it. But because the sign is there, so is the temptation. That Heightened temptation in response to an explicit command or rule takes many forms. My father-in-law, Larry, grew up at a Catholic orphanage in San Antonio. At that orphanage, there was a big bell outside the chapel that the nuns would ring in order to call the kids to, to chapel services. And there was a very clear rule that none of the boys was ever to ring that bell. They all knew that the penalty would be painful if they violated that rule. Actually, if they got caught violating that rule. Well, to Larry, that was what's called a challenge. He became fixated on ringing, ringing that bell without getting caught. So he hatched a plan, and one day at the right time, 
he fastened a rope to the bell and he tied the other end of the rope to the orphanage's trusty dog. One of the other boys that was there took a photo of the event using a very early version of the iPhone. And here's that photo. <laughs> Actually, uh, the cartoon is compliments of Jeff Hayden, whom I commissioned to, to, to do it based on the story. Now, Larry had kitchen duty at that point. That was his job at the orphanage. So he also sneaked out a big bone with some tasty meat still on it. And after tying the dog to the bell, he, of course, put the bone just out of the dog's reach. So needless to say, the dog was as fixated on that bone as Larry was on getting that bell to ring. And every time the dog would jump to the end of the rope to get to the bone and get snapped back, that bell would clang and clang and clang louder. When the red-faced nuns arrived on the scene and started trying to untie the rope, uh, the, the other boys, of course, were gathered in the background laughing their hearts out until they cried. Now, I don't think the nuns ever actually caught Larry or figured out that he was the one who did it, but if they had, I'm sure he would have said, I didn't ring the bell, the dog did. And that approach focuses uh, on the letter of the law and not on the spirit, not on the intent. If you were ever a kid... Uh, you know what it means to be very skilled at that approach, right? <laughs> that letter versus the spirit thing goes back to what we looked at in the previous passage, especially verse 6. But the part of that little story, true story, that ties the previous verses together with the ones we're looking at today is that that rule that said no boys are allowed to ring this bell made that bell the object of laser-like focus on the part of the boys in that orphanage, especially Larry, who at that point wasn't particularly keen on the idea of submission to authority. The knowledge of the rule stirred up in those boys an almost irresistible longing to break it. That response of sin to the law is what Paul is talking about in this passage. That is, that the knowledge of sin which comes through the law, doesn't make us less prone to sin. It makes us more prone to sin. So just just as surely as law-keeping cannot justify us in the eyes of God, law-keeping cannot sanctify us in the eyes of God. It's important to keep in mind that the context of chapters 6 through 8 is talking about sanctification, about practical righteousness. So here's where we're going this morning. First, Paul poses the question at the beginning of verse 7, is the law sin? And then he proceeds to answer it. And in his answer, first in verses 7 and 8, he says, through the law, sin produces greater sin. And then in verses 9 through 11, through the law, sin resulted in death. And then finally in verses 12 and 13, he becomes very clear about the fact that the culprit here is not the law. The culprit is sin. First, the question in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now, we've already seen this same structural pattern where he poses the question either what then or what shall we say then? And then he immediately answers it with 
may it never be. And then he goes on to, uh, he actually poses the, the rest of the question. Uh, that pattern showed up in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. It showed up in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And it showed up in chapter 6, verse 15. The fact that that pattern is repeated should tell us that when it occurs, we're supposed to pay attention because Paul is getting at something that's really important. The two questions, what shall we say then, is the law sin, point back to what Paul just got through saying in the previous passage in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7. He said in no uncertain terms that we must die to the law, we must be released from the law in order to be joined to Christ. In verse 6, he said that having now been released from the law, we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. It would be easy for his readers to conclude from all that negative talk about having to die to the law and to be released from the law that there's something wrong with the law, right? So Paul goes to that very question and he addresses it head on. He says, is the law sin? Of course, the answer is, may it never be. The rest of his answer, the detail of his answer, is found in the remainder of verses 7 through 13. In the second part of verse 7 and in verse 8, he begins to flesh out that answer, and there are two parts to what he says in these two verses. First, the law has a positive effect of giving us clear knowledge of sin. That's a good thing. But then he says that sin does something rather unexpected with that same knowledge. And that is, it produces more sin instead of obedience. He says, on the contrary, after asking the question, is the law sin? On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, at first glance, this might appear to contradict some things that Paul said in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 1, he explained that mankind had rejected the truth of God and suppressed that truth in unrighteousness. And he said that God gave men over to degrading passions and to a depraved mind to commit grievous acts. And then in chapter 1, verse 32, he said, Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, They not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. So even without an explicit knowledge or declaration of the law of Moses, he says men know the ordinance of God. They know that their deeds are evil and they know that they're worthy of death. In chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, Paul spoke at least hypothetically of Gentiles who do not have the law yet do instinctively the things of the law. And he said, such men are a law unto themselves and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. But now in chapter 7, he says, without the specific commandment, you shall not covet, he would never have known about coveting. So how does that work? Well, I believe there's no conflict at all between what he said earlier and what he's saying here. In those previous passages, Paul was speaking about the law in fairly general terms. But here in verse 7, he's getting very, very specific. 
There's a reason in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 7 that he singles out one specific commandment from the law of Moses, the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. And there's a reason he goes on then to use the word commandment in the singular in verses 8 through 13. Not because that one commandment's the only one that's relevant to this discussion, but because he's talking about how we respond when we get a specific prohibition, a specific rule. He's drilling down to the level of specific explicit commandments contained in the law because it is there that the sin nature shows itself to be utterly sinful. It is there that the response of sin to the law plays into the issue of our sanctification, which again is the central topic of chapters 6 through 8. As believers, we don't have a problem with the law as the reflection of God's holy and righteous character. As believers, we don't particularly have a problem with being called to manifest the character of God in our behavior. That's something we very much want to do. And Paul will go on to say in, uh, later in this chapter, that's what he very much wants to do. Where we have a problem is in the response of the old man, the old sin nature, to the specific commandments of the law, especially to the specific prohibitions. That's where the deceptiveness of sin takes hold. Paul singles out one commandment. In fact, the commandment that provides the most detail among all the negative commandments in the Ten Commandments. It goes to very specific behaviors. In Exodus chapter 20, that final commandment says, you are not to covet your neighbor's house, nor his wife, nor his male or female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything else that belongs to him. Paul said, he would not known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What does the word covet mean? Well, in both the Hebrew and Greek versions of that word, the root word is to desire or to lust after. Even in the absence of a specific command, men might figure out that stealing somebody else's stuff is sin. But the Tenth Commandment says that coveting somebody else's stuff is sin. I can see why Paul could say that he might not have known that that was a sin had he not found it explicitly stated in God's law. There are many other prohibitions in the law against behaviors that we probably wouldn't intuitively consider to be sin, like not consuming the blood of an animal or not eating leavened bread on certain days. Or not wearing wool and linen together. <laughs> but Paul's point is that once he did know about that specific commandment regarding coveting, sin saw an opportunity. And in verse 8, he said, sin taking opportunity through the law, through the commandment, commandment singular, produced in me coveting of every kind. Instead of retreating when exposed to the light of God's character reflected in the law, sin advances. It treats the law as an opportunity to generate even more sin. Paul speaks of sin here as calculated and intentional. It's as if he's personifying sin. 
And, and in doing so, he's really not doing anything new, right? Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 4, you see God's warning to Cain that sin is crouching at the door. It's like the image of a lion crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. But you must master it. Sin is consistently presented in Scripture in very aggressive and active terms. In Romans 7 verse 8, Paul says, Sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. Now, when the 10th commandment, the commandment against coveting, was originally given around 1440 B.C., it included that list that we just saw of things that a man might covet. And you know what? For an agrarian culture, that list was fairly comprehensive. A man's house, his wife, his servants, and his livestock pretty well covered what he might own. And you might throw in his sandals and the clothes on his back just to make sure you covered all the bases. But in Paul's day, there was more stuff available to covet. And Paul says that once he became aware of this commandment, sin took opportunity and produced in him coveting of every kind. <laughs> that verse got me to thinking about the Tenth Commandment in, in our modern context. What do we have available to covet in our culture? The options are endless. Even if I don't have a problem with my neighbor's house or his wife, there's still his Beamer, his smartphone, his laptop, his garage door opener, his lawn care service, his internet speed, his 401k, his water softener, his games console, and his electric toothbrush. And the list goes on and on. No matter how much I have... I see whatever the other guy has that I don't have, and that becomes the focus of my attention. That's the way sin works. Paul's point is that the clear knowledge that something is forbidden to us immediately makes it more attractive to our old sin nature. There is a perverse creativity to sin that gets unleashed within men in the attempt to get our hands on that which has been specifically forbidden to us. I can only imagine how exciting it was to Larry and to those other boys in that orphanage as they plotted to implement Larry's little plan involving a dog, a bell, a rope, and a bone. If the bell had not been off limits to those boys, think about what would have happened. They all would have rung it several times and then gotten bored and gone on to something else. And every time a new boy showed up in the orphanage, he would have rung it for a while and the other boys would have said, eh, it's old hat. But the fact that they were pro prohibited from ringing it turned it into a grand adventure. You know, it's the crime of the century. Now just consider for a moment the untold ingenuity, creativity, and energy that has been expended by mankind on trying to figure out how to break rules without getting caught. I wonder how much money has been spent on radar detectors to date. That's the way sin works. It sees the commandment as an opportunity. Sometimes it builds a whole industry around it. It rebels against the requirement of humble submission to authority, especially of submission to God's authority. Go back to chapter 1. And it arrogantly sins all the more. Paul ends verse 8 by adding the statement, For apart from the law, sin is dead. 
This is the flip side of what he's been saying in verses 7 and 8. It is the response of sin to the law to enliven or stir up sin. And the corollary to that is that in the absence of specific commandments, sin loses that vitality. It loses that life. It doesn't mean there's no sin. Paul goes on in verses 9 through 11 to explain that through the law, the same sin that produced greater sin produced our death. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. I want to first kind of drill it down on that first statement. I was once alive apart from the law. As I see it, that's the most difficult statement in this passage. At first glance. <laughs> Paul says, I was once, a, and I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Now, in what sense was Paul once alive apart from the law? We can be sure that he's not saying he possessed eternal life before he came to know the requirement of the law and then lost that eternal life once he gained that knowledge. That would negate his entire argument in chapters 1 through 3 regarding the universal condemnation of all men because we're all sinners. Paul never, ever says that there's a time in each person's life when he is not a sinner. Even in Romans 5, 5, when he said, Until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. He immediately followed that by saying, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense. Both sin and the curse of sin, which is death, were in full force even before the law of Moses was revealed by God to Israel. So, once again, what does Paul mean when he says, I was once alive apart from the law? Well, there's good evidence right here in the immediate context that he's using the term alive in a less literal sense than he typically does. In verses 8 and 9, he personifies sin and he says, apart from the law, sin is dead. And then he says, when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And sin isn't actually a person. And Paul's not talking in literal terms about sin being dead and then becoming alive. When he says sin became alive, I believe he's speaking of the stirring up or energizing of sin and of how sin manifested itself in him. That is by producing even greater sin, coveting of every kind. In that same context, speaking of himself, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. I don't believe Paul's talking here about life and death in a literal sense, either physical or spiritual. I believe he's simply talking from the perspective of his own experience and awareness of sin and its consequences. Think of it this way. Do the unbelievers that you know typically consider themselves to be dead or alive? From their viewpoint, they're as alive as you or me. 
So how do they come to know and experience the reality that they are, in fact, spiritually dead and in need of a Savior? Well, based on this passage, one of the very important ways that God accomplishes that radical change in awareness is by showing men through their failed efforts at law-keeping that they are incapable of law-keeping. That in fact, their knowledge of the law makes them less submitted to that which the law requires and instead makes them sin even more. I can tell you that when I was a very religious young man, an altar boy in fact, trying valiantly to do the things that constituted godliness, God over a period of time made it more and more apparent to me that I was failing even to comply with my own standard of righteousness, which I knew fell infinitely short of his standard of righteousness. In the months that led up to the night when he opened my eyes to see his amazing grace and to trust in his son as my savior, I found myself acting more and more rebellious against my parents and against everything that I knew to be good. I used to go to youth meetings at my liberal church and I and my friends would make fun of all the Jesus freaks that we knew from our schools. But all the while, I wished that I had what those Jesus freaks had. My pretense of seeking to be good only proved me to be evil. And the darkness in my heart condemned me, even in my own eyes. And it cried out to convince me that I was dead. I believe that's what Paul is talking about here. He just said that the response of his own sin to the law was... Uh, law against covenanting was to produce in him covenanting of every kind. So instead of proving him to be righteous and alive to God, the knowledge of God's righteousness that came through the law proved him to be utterly sinful and dead to God. Sin, on the other hand, became energized and alive through the law. But Paul, confronted with the coveting in his own heart, became dead even in his own eyes. In Romans 2, verse 4, Paul said, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The night God brought me to faith in his Son was the night that I became more fully aware than ever of how utterly lost and dead I had been in his eyes. The knowledge of his perfect and uncompromising holiness convinced me that I was helpless to make myself acceptable to him. But it was the knowledge of his grace in Jesus Christ that freed me to look my sin squarely in the face and to accept his gift. I will never know why he saved me, but I've never doubted since that day that he did. And I've always known that I didn't have anything to do with it. In verse 10, Paul says, And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Now the Jews always saw that the law was that by which they would have life. They saw the law as that by which they would have life. 
and by which they could have relationship with God. And you know what? From a biblical perspective, they had a good reason to think that. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20, God said through Moses to Israel, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live. You and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. God promised to Israel life prosperity, and blessing in the land if they would love Him and obey His commandments contained in the law. Israel badly failed to meet that requirement and and was yanked out of the land of promise and taken away into exile. So did Israel's inability to keep the requirements of God's law make God's promises a lie? Absolutely not. We must come to comply with the righteous requirement of God's law in order to have life. That requirement, that standard, never changed because the law is the reflection of the character of God and God never changes. Israel's inability to keep the requirement of God's law didn't change the standard of righteousness required by the law or the promise of God that compliance with that standard is the only way to have real life. Instead, it simply proved Israel's need and our need for a righteousness that comes from Him instead of from us. The standard doesn't change. In the next chapter of Romans, in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, here's what Paul says about the requirement of the law. He says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did. God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that what? In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we'll dive into that in great depth in a couple of weeks. But permit me to repeat myself a little bit on this vitally important point. Our inability to keep the commandments of the law, an inability that extends to every human being, in no way changes the standard of the law. Because the law is the reflection of God's character and God does not change. 
we are still accountable to be conformed to the holiness of God. Leviticus 19.2, you are to be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. And until we are conformed to his character, we do not have life. But there's a radical change in our approach toward the law that comes about when we realize that Jesus Christ is the only law keeper. And it is his compliance with the perfect law of God that makes us righteous because we are in him. Paul says in verse 11, For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. Paul's very careful with his wording here. (laughs) Who is it that's doing the deceiving and the killing? Is it the law? No, it's sin. Sin deceived him and killed him And how did it do that? Through the commandment. I want to camp out on the idea for a moment that sin deceives us through the law. (laughs) The deceitfulness of sin warrants our careful attention, especially in light of what Paul's just been saying. Sin takes that which would appear to be a good and worthy pursuit, that is, diligently keeping the commandments of the law, and it turns that pursuit into a futile and even counterproductive pursuit. The harder we try to be good law keepers, the more miserably we fail. Our knowledge of the law and our fixation on the law only ensures that we will sin all the more. I believe the role of deception that the serpent played in the temptation of Adam and Eve was rendered unnecessary as soon as Adam and Eve sinned. From that point forward, sin didn't require the serpent's involvement anymore. The sin nature deceives just fine all by itself. I believe that's why James presents the syndrome of temptation and sin as he does in James 1, verses 13 to 17. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And then look at what he says, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Is the devil anywhere in that description? No. He's not mentioned at all. James says we are tempted and carried away when we are enticed by our own lust. Our lust conceives sin, gives birth to sin, and once the sin is accomplished, sin brings forth death. By the way, sin always brings forth death. As we saw earlier in Romans 7, there are only two paths that you can be on. The path toward death or the path toward life. There's no middle ground. If you're a believer, you cannot lose the eternal life that God has given you. But that does not change the fact that sin always moves toward death. And I believe it's possible and all too common for believers to step off the path of life and onto the path of death. Unfortunately, I think many believers spend a great deal of time on that other path. 
Because there's so many things on that path that look so attractive. We all know about the big banner sins that actually look like sins, right? Obsession with money, power, sex, self-indulgence. But I think where the grade A deceptiveness of sin sets in is in those things that on the surface actually look good. And one of sin's most damaging deceptions is the notion that law-keeping keeps us on the straight and narrow path. Because in reality, law-keeping does not move us off the path of death. It keeps us on that path, and it ensnares us all the more to keep us away from the path of life and true godliness. We have a hard time with that idea. We love law-keeping. But law-keeping is not the path of life. Grace is the path of life. In verses 12 and 13, Paul forcefully vindicates the law. He dispels any notion that the culprit here is the law. He says in verse 12, So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You can't get any clearer than that, can you? The fact that sin takes opportunity through the law to move us toward greater and greater sin does not in any way indict the law itself. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, did that which become a cause, uh, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? And then again, he uses that strong negative, may it never be. And then he says, he makes it very clear here. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. That through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. And then he concludes, and he says, in effect, what he's saying is, it would be bad enough if sin used something bad to gain leverage against us. <laughs> but it is particularly nefarious that sin uses the, go- the good, the holy, and perfect law of God to bring about our death. And by doing so, sin is proven to be utterly sinful. I think there's a, a wonderfully ironic justice that plays out here at the end of this passage. Sin took opportunity through the commandment of the law to prove us to be sinners and to bring about our death and condemnation. But when all is said and done, it is the very holiness of the law of God that proves the heinousness of our sin and that acts as our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It is the law that God uses as a schoolmaster to expose the darkness of our sins so that we will see our need for a Savior and we will turn to Jesus Christ. Sin used the commandment to condemn us. God uses the same holy and righteous commandment to condemn sin, to prove it to be utterly sinful. You've got to love that. 
Now here's how I understand the progression in this passage. The progression really in this passage and the preceding passages. This is how I believe the the connection between law and sin plays out. And it's wonderful how God orchestrates it. First, the law reveals the holy and righteous character of God. And by the way, on that first point, that is why for you and me, it is still exceedingly valuable to study and examine the law of God in the Old Testament. I love to teach the book of Leviticus because it surprises people to discover the holiness of God in all of that detail. And the whole law is like that. The law and the prophets are are very, very worthy of of our diligent study as believers. Why? Because we want to know as much as we can know about the character of our God. So the law reveals the holy and righteous character of God. Secondly, we try to comply with that holy and righteous standard by keeping the commandments of the law. But our sin responds to the commandments of the law not by doing good, but by doing even greater evil. It's the wet paint paradigm. Sin, therefore, proves us to be dead and leaves us condemned. But God uses that very same proof to show us our desperate need for a righteousness that comes from Him and not from us. The law becomes our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. God reveals that gift of righteousness, His righteousness, from faith to faith as He brings us to trust in Jesus Christ rather than in ourselves. And it is through faith in the true lawkeeper that we come to have life and to be delivered from both the penalty and the power of sin and ultimately from the presence of sin. The marvelous grace of God through Jesus Christ overcomes the deception and destructiveness of sin. It destroys the hold that sin had over us. And instead of the death that we deserved we receive eternal life in Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 2. I I come back to this passage so often. It's just so beautiful. Paul says, And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt against us, consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile toward us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Dear Father, we praise your name knowing that Jesus Christ has destroyed the hold that sin had over us. Knowing that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to you. We are slaves to righteousness. Teach us, Lord, to cling to your amazing grace moment by moment. That we may know in practice the freedom from sin that you've granted to us. 
that we may live and act in a manner worthy of our glorious calling in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen.